0: This week, JCPenney debtors received letter of intent from Simon and Brookfield. i files for Chapter 11 with RSA in hand. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, stress debt, and bankruptcy. I'm
0: Connor Skelding. And I'm Mark Fisher. Later this episode, we discuss the controversy, litigation, and next steps for creditors related to Transocean's recently closed exchange offer. It's Sunday, September 13th.
1: At a Wednesday status conference, counsel for the JCPenney Penney debtors announced that the retailer has entered into a letter of intent with Simon Property Group, Brookfield Property Group, and RSA Signatory DIP and First Lien lenders to divvy up the debtors' assets into a PropCo and OpCo structure, which the debtors say is consistent with the previously filed RSA. Thursday morning, the debtors filed an 8K with the letter of intent, term sheets from dip and first lien lenders describing a credit bid by lenders and first lien noteholders, and the Simon Brookfield proposed purchase and business plan related cleansing materials with more detail regarding the proposed transaction. The agreements contemplate a credit bid by the dip and first lien lenders and note holders and a $300 million equity investment by Simon Property and Brookfield. Included in the 8K and exhibits is a letter of intent by Simon Property and Brookfield to acquire Opco and issue $500 million of new Opco debt to JCP's DIP and first lien lenders. The debtors state the LOI, quote, is consistent with the framework of the restructuring process contemplated in the RSA, which was entered into on May 15th with an ad hoc group of lenders and noteholders that held approximately 70% of the debtor's first lien debt. JCPenney would be split into a propco owned by the DIP and First Lien lenders that would own 160 stores and six distribution centers with the goal of winding down or selling the properties, an opco owned by Simon Property and Brookfield that would own the remaining stores and intellectual property, and a liquidation company owning other credit card related litigation claims and other assets. According to the press release, Simon Property and Brookfield's total purchase price for opco would be $1.75 billion, which includes the cash and new term loan debt. The dip lenders and first lien holders' credit bid, according to the term sheet, would include the full amount of the dip and up to $100 million of first lien notes and term loan claims. The debtors say they expect to complete the auction and emerge from bankruptcy operating under the JCPenney banner in advance of the 2020 holiday season, according to a press release from the company.
0: And on the island of Puerto Rico, in the Title III cases, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Wednesday denied motion seeking stay relief filed by Monoline Insurers, Assured, and back. National and Financial Guarantee Insurance Company related to the revenue securing the Puerto Rico Infrastructure Fund RUM tax bonds, the hotel occupancy tax revenue related to the Puerto Rico Convention Center District Authority or CCDA bonds and pledge revenue related to the Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority bonds. Instead of stay relief, Judge Swain found that the issues raised in the motion should be litigated in connection with the party's ongoing adversary proceedings. Also on Wednesday, The Bermuda Oversight Board said that it is still premature to propose a schedule related to the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment and Disclosure Statement, but that with creditor negotiations having resumed, it will know, quote, in short order, whether a modified Plan of Adjustment is capable of being reached. The Oversight Board asked the court to allow it to submit an updated uh, status report by October 25th to, quote, report on the progress and hopefully the completion of planned discussions with Commonwealth officials, creditors, and the mediation team.
1: i an operator of call centers based in St. Petersburg, Florida, filed for Chapter 11 on Thursday morning in Texas with a prepack supported by first lien and second lien lenders. The debtors attributed their filing to a liquidity crunch throughout the year and their failure to attract bidders for its business process outsourcing unit, which it had endeavored to sell. The plan provides for a new money investment of nearly $100 million and would delever the company's balance sheet by some half a billion. It will also refinance the remainder of funded debt with as much as $177 million in exit financing. Existing preferred interests, common interests, and other interests would be wiped out under the plan and the company said it expects to emerge from Chapter 11 within 45 days. The debtors obtained all requested relief at an uncontested first-day hearing in Houston, including interim approval of $130 million of dip financing. Christopher Marcus of Kirkland & Ellis proposed counsel to the debtors stressed that the company's, quote, "'greatest asset' is its employees." Judge David Jones later commented in granting the employee wages motion that the relief sought through the motion reflects that ICOR quote, "'is a company who loves its employees.'" A second-day and combined DS approval and planned confirmation hearing is set for October 14th. Other top stories last week were Senator Rubio requests full review by CFIUS of Harbin's acquisition of GNC. Malincrot pays $5.2 million in executive cash bonuses, subject to repayment if the executive resigns prior to emergence from hypothetical Chapter 11. CEC Entertainment enters PSA with over 66% of first lien lenders for comprehensive financial restructuring deal includes $200 million fully backstop dip.
2: Next, here's Jim with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Mark. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, because this is going to be week-larded with drama. And for all the details, make sure you see our weekly Ford calendar released bright and early every Monday morning. And on the subject of the aforesaid Monday, September 14th, an auction and a hearing in J.C. Penney, second-day hearing in Fieldwood Energy, and a status conference in extraction, oil, and gas. There's interesting doings related to well setbacks up there in Colorado, maybe worth keeping an eye on. Tuesday, September 15th, there's an auction in GNC, a sale hearing in Briggs and Stratton, and a stay relief hearing in Gavilan, the one-time partner of Sanchez Energy in the Comanche asset. Wednesday, September 16th, omnibus hearing in Frontier, an auction in Ascensa and a plan distribution procedures motion hearing in Windstream. That sounds compelling. Thursday, the 17th of December, Valeris, there's an insurer settlement motion hearing, a special purpose hearing in Hertz, and omnibus hearings in Puerto Rico, GNC, and Talon Energy. And on to Friday, September 18th, you know it struck me more than once that some of these cases could be rendered into excellent country songs by, you know, Merle Haggard or Towns Van Zandt, one of the geniuses of the old school before this pop music with fiddle stuff took over. Just think of what Merle could do with the Neiman Marcus cases, for example. And there is, as it happens, a preliminary injunction hearing in Neiman Marcus today. There's also hearings in tailored brands and Valaris. And that's all for me. Up next, it's Mark again, along with legal aid Sean Daly and Harvard Jang, the New York's king of scoops, tell you about some doings in Transocean. Take it away, boys. Thanks, Jim. So we're going to talk about Transocean today. I'm here with Harvard John
0: and Sean Daly, who are going to go through some of the specifics, uh, mostly focusing on uh, the creditor uh, discontent um, with the transaction, the exchange transactions, and um, the legal ramifications of that. Uh, so just a little bit of background. Transocean, the offshore driller, uh, back on August 5th, launched a, um, an exchange transaction. It's actually did it in a couple of stages. First, did it um, targeted um, for uh, their uh, half a percent exchangeable bonds due 2023 for new what they called structurally senior. Exchangeable uh, bonds that were due at a later date, they then launched opened it up to a broader group of bondholders and uh, have since uh, you know gotten some results from that, but um, wanted to uh, focus on uh, the stuff that happened in between after the company launched the uh, the exchange offer, which again was for originally for unsecured notes into uh, what they called structurally senior exchangeable bonds, and that was what they said was even ahead of existing priority notes that they had, and then uh, launched the broader exchange for uh, a bunch of their uh, debt throughout their capital structure, all for um, this uh, again quote structurally senior uh, priority note. Um, so Harvard, um, why don't um, you know? Why don't you tell us a little about uh, the bondholder? Um, uh, actions that they've taken so on August 11th, one day after that second exchange, which was open to the broader group, was announced, um, you had discovered a letter that um, was sent by certain holders to the company. Um, so, can you tell us who wrote the letter? Which group of holders did they represent?
3: Yes, Mark. Um, so, law firm Milbank wrote that letter to Transocean's Council, wet and case. Um letter, as you said, was sent on uh, on August tenth. So on that same day, the issuer announced, uh, two exchanges: a follow-up private exchange of the exchangeable notes, which sit at the the bottom of the capital structure, and a broader exchange offer for you know th- three guaranteed note tranches and, um, eight unsecured note tranches. The the August tenth letter from Millbank was kind of like targeting the, the first private exchange of the exchangeable notes announced uh, on August 5th. Um, so Milbank claimed in the correspondence that its clients kind of own about 1.1 billion in total or 54% uh, of the three trenches of um, priority guarantee notes. These three trenches of the notes kind of, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that sit above, you know, 10 trenches of the company's Uh, Unsecure note tranches Millbank also said that uh, Its clients uh, also owns About 1.2 billion of uh, Notes issued by certain subsidiaries Of TransOcean Limited uh, in connection with certain projects and about um, a little over 500 million of, you know, various other positions across the uh, TransOcean's um, capital structure.
0: Great. So, um, you know, tell us about uh, the letter. How were the transactions described? And then, uh, you know, specifically how that relates to what accusations were made about the legality of the exchange and, and the related transactions?
3: Sure. Uh, a couple of things. Maybe... F- Front and center, the, the Milbank um, kind of called the private exchange of the exchangeable notes uh, a fraudulent transfer under uh, the laws of "quote every uh, relevant jurisdiction" end quote. Um, Millbank kind of explained uh, it the the transaction as you know because as a result of the private privately negotiated tra- exchange, you know the bondholder groups says that the the the, the top tier transaction. Uh, holding its entities, you know, certain entities that kind of guaranteed, you know, it. Uh, Millbank's clients' debt holdings will kind of incur, um, or have their subsidiaries incur uh, two hundred thirty million of liabilities uh, for kind of the debt that these entities previously didn't have any obligations to repay. And that amount, $213 is the amount that the uh, old exchangeable notes will be exchanged into. Uh, and also, Melbank said that the, these holding entities and their subsidiaries will receive no benefit uh, from this transaction in return. Uh, secondly, you know, Millbank said given trans, Transocean's insolvency, you know, members of the board may be personally li- liable for damages, and uh, Millbank also kind of touched on the rationale uh, uh, for maybe doing this private exchange, uh, mentioning like you know the the transaction would benefit a director of Transocean uh, who kind of owns the uh, the exchangeable bonds, um, and also. Uh, the bondholder group also uh, kind of mentioned the inter- internal restructuring transaction, uh, namely, like uh, uh, res- uh, with, with with respect to two uh, rigs, uh, what they call uh, what actually Milbank called the the most valuable uh, drilling rigs, the Transocean Endurance and Transocean Equinox, um, and the indebtedness secured thereby. So. Uh, and the group was like I, I they had like insufficient insufficient information to understand why you know uh, the company is doing this so they just uh, took it as uh, uh, wholly inappropriate uh, and also uh, the group mentioned the private exchange had no legitimate business purpose and provide little to benefit TransOcean as a whole and mailbank and the group kind of urged the company to abandon this privately negotiated transaction and to pursue a, quote, comprehensive restructuring uh, to simplify and, you know, to leverage TransOcean's capital structure. Thanks, Harvard.
0: Uh, So before I bring Sean on to, you know, talk about the in-court arguments, uh, the, the formal complaint, wanted to just uh, update you know what happened uh, between the letter and um, White box's complaint. Uh, the company got um, the preliminary results. I think about one point one billion dollars of notes had tendered. And then uh, the day before the final results uh, were due, that's when uh, White box filed its uh, complaint. White box was also represented by Millbank, um, who, you know, was a party to uh, to that letter that, Harvard discussed they filed a complaint in the Southern District of New York, seeking to delay the closing of the exchange for two weeks, in addition to making certain changes in the offering memorandum. Uh, Sean, can you go into uh, the arguments that Whitebox and Millbank made? Sure. Uh, thanks, Mark.
4: So the, the main argument the complaint was filed, and it was followed shortly thereafter by a, a motion for a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction saying, hey, stop, you know, stop this exchange offer from closing, uh, was based on relative uh, to what Harvard just talked about, sort of a a very narrow uh, idea that there are misstatements or omissions that are misleading enough in the offering memorandum that they rise to the level of securities fraud. Um, So securities fraud, not, not something that anyone wants to, wants to read about in connection with a, a deal they are maybe about to do. Uh, it's, it's great for plaintiff's attorneys who, who wake up and, and run to their, their computers, uh, but for everyone else, not so good. And there's, there's sort of a couple nuanced arguments because you need to, in, in order to get, um, this, this relief to, you know, to stop the transaction and now, uh, You know, as opposed to as the as the judge, the the U.S. District Court judge, non-bankruptcy judge, put it, you're just bondholders. What you know? What does the company owe you other than money? Which you know? Oh, oh, boy. uh, Good luck now convincing him of of some very nuanced uh, argument related to the indenture and and potential future bankruptcy risk. But uh, in in the court, uh, full you know, full spoiler, the court did not grant. Uh, uh, White box and, and Millbank's request to uh, to stop the the exchange, but at any rate, the arguments they made were that uh, you know these these omissions and misstatements uh, were around the the idea that according to this group, the company if it if it tried to. Uh, Create uh, new sort of structurally senior entities to guarantee the new notes. Well, there was a provision in the existing guarantee notes indenture that would require the company to grant uh, a matching guarantee as is as the assets from the now upper tier holding companies were moved to these uh, mid-tier holding companies uh, that guaranteed the new notes. The, the existing guarantee notes said, hey, we're supposed to get one of those too. Um, and so there, there are certain other things we can we can get into that they can do to sort of address that under the indenture. But the only thing that they can sort of point to uh, to get the court to stop the deal today is that uh, people were harmed and there's there's no other way to rectify this harm other than to just pause things. Uh, so the the argument was uh, sort of along the lines of, you know, we're harmed because people tendering into the exchange won't know the deal they're getting and sort of have been fraudulently induced to exchange by the company's uh, shoddy description of what the offer actually tries to do and doesn't acknowledge this guarantee that uh, we're entitled to, and, and the company sort of said, "No, listen. You know, the big hole here. The reason you're not saying stop the transaction because it can't go through is because we can do this under the docs." Uh, and they sort of focused on look at uh, the amount of permitted indebtedness, and it's you know we're we're allowed to bring in X amount of debt senior to you, so you know there's there's no issue here. Uh, Plus, we also don't think that we owe you the guarantee that you think you do. So it was, it was sort of like uh, a, a narrow, a, a very narrow approach.
0: So, so Sean, you know, as you said, um, the the judge over, you know overruled this. It was a narrow, um, it was a narrow approach that they took as compared to the letter that Harvard reported on earlier, in which. They, uh, the Millbank Group, accuses Transocean of a fraudulent transfer, um, as well as some other, um, you know, harsh uh, accusations. Why go with this narrow approach instead of, um, you know, I guess I don't know, throwing everything, you know, including the kitchen sink um, at the at at the company here to try and stop this exchange from happening?
4: Yeah, it's it's a good question, uh, and I would think about it. You know. You, you want to make your best, your strongest arguments first and then sort of go to your, to your weaker arguments. Um, so if the stronger arguments aren't there, uh, or I, I guess, you know, the, the way I would look at it is this was sort of, you know, it was an interesting theory. It was, you know, it was nice and, and creative and um, was, was designed to try to achieve a purpose I think I mentioned it maybe a minute ago. One of the things that the company focused on is, hey, you know, you're not alleging that we cannot do these transactions. We have sufficient permitted indebtedness capacity to issue this this new uh, structurally senior debt. So that's I think that's sort of the the short answer is that because the note holders couldn't. You know, it's it's like the difference between saying, hey, this entire transaction cannot be done uh, you know, for X, Y, Z reasons, that's, that's very compelling. What I think here, this, the slight difference is they were saying, hey, we don't think this particular piece of the transaction can be done. Um, and then sort of the, you know, there, there are other methods of, of recourse under their own indentures, to deal with that, um, but I, I think that's sort of what it what it came down to. Also, I'll, I'll note to the um, you know the fraudulent transfer stuff, which which was really nice in the first letter. You know, they kind of, although not explicitly, they they um, raised both for the for the lawyers out there. They they raised both the possibility of a constructive fraudulent transfer as well as an actual fraudulent transfer um, with some facts that would probably back up the the reasonably equivalent value part on the constructive fraud uh, but that was that was only related to uh, this one you know particular security that uh, had been exchanged by an affiliate of a director and I, I think the it's it's it was sort of a, a nice thing to put out there, right? Because again, like securities fraud, nobody likes to to see the words fraudulent transfer, and, and there's you know you can get a little bit of shock value for that, um, but it's it's sort of not as applicable. I mean, actual actual fraud is is a different beast, but uh, the. The sort of constructive fraud argument that you see sometimes in up-tier exchange contexts, I don't think the facts shake out quite as well for a challenger under this fact pattern. So I, th- I think that's why they, you know, they raised it at the time, and I, I think those particular facts, that first sort of transaction, maybe, maybe, um, you know, it was it was a little bit more persuasive of an argument, but I just don't think it would play out in the same way with this, um, you know, later much broader exchange offer.
0: Thanks, Sean. Um, so, yeah, as you said, the judge overruled it. Uh, the um, the company announced results. You had uh, about one point five billion dollars of notes um, ex- uh, tendered or exchanged into uh, to the transaction, and the company issued six hundred eighty eight million of new uh, twenty twenty seven senior guaranteed notes, but. I guess there's still uh, a chance for creditors here to, to fight this. Uh, they had mentioned a letter right at the, uh, at, at the hearing. Can you, talk to, can you talk to us about next steps here for creditors for the company and perhaps anyone else involved?
4: Sure. So the, the lawsuit has uh, a status conference uh, set for October 14th. And, you know, I, I think from here where you go, the, the, the letter you mentioned just a second ago, uh, counsel for, for Whitebox noted that uh, the, the sort of requisite, one of, the, one of the arguments the company made earlier was that, oh, hey, listen, you're, you know, whatever you group of purported holders of our securities, which is, is a nice little dig uh, to put in your, your memo lines, purported holders. Um, you know, we don't know if you even have the the requisite threshold under an indenture to give a notice of default. So on the, at the hearing on Thursday, council said, yes, you know what? We've got enough. Boom. We sent it. Uh, so that, that notice of default would kick off a cure period under the indenture. And, you know, if you're the bondholders, you've said to the company, hey, you know, we think you owe us that guarantee, give it to us. And so that you know, now the company has some time uh, to figure out how it's going to respond. Is it you know? You, essentially, now we get to we get to the merits of the indenture related fight. And, and this is something that the judge brought up in denying the TRO. He said, all right, listen, you know, you can go fight on on the merits all you want. That's that's your right under the docs. And. Um, you know, Millbank had said, "Yeah, well, we don't we don't think we're you know sort of sufficiently protected by that because what if the company files and we win on the merits and then because of all these structurally senior holders, and we even if we get a money judgment, the company can't pay us a hundred cents on the dollar. So it's you know it's sort of this uh, temporal push and push and pull. But uh, yeah, the in short, now the idea is you you kind of get to litigate the merits of the uh, the indenture related claims."
0: Great. And uh, we'll, we'll see how that fight goes. Uh, we'll be watching. Sean, Harvard, thank you uh, guys very much. Uh, it's been very informative for, for me and our uh, listeners. New York, back to you.
1: Thank you. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to another Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. See you next weekend.